The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, it was very hard, again, trying to figure out what the hell to talk about today because there's just way too much out there. (laughs) There's a lot going on. So the biggest stories for those listening are probably the European Union parliamentary elections, the total mess in the United Kingdom, uh, Trump's trip to Japan and the huge split it revealed on North Korea policy and his arms sales to Saudi Arabia. But there's like three or four more stories that we might get to before we get to this week's guest, Ron Klain, who talked about the Ebola response he managed in 2014 and the pretty scary outbreak that's happening right now in uh, Congo. So packed show today. And lastly, before Ben and I get going, uh, we here at Crooked Media announce a brand new podcast called This Land. It's hosted by Rebecca Nagel, an Oklahoma journalist and citizen of the Cherokee Nation. The show is going to provide an in-depth look at how a cut-and-dry murder case opened an investigation into who owns half the land in Oklahoma. This Land premieres on June 3rd. It's an incredible show. So you can subscribe right now and listen to the trailer. It comes out next week on June 3rd. You're going to love it. It's a great show. It's a new narrative style show for us that we want to do more of. So please check it out. Okay. Cool. So the European Parliament election. So this is a legislative arm of the EU. They're the only EU representatives that are directly elected by member state citizens. So they pass European Union laws. They provide some oversight over EU institutions. They deal with the budget. Each country has a number of EU reps proportionate to its population. Apparently, there's 751 reps total, which seems completely unmanageable to me. But what do I know? So the elections were over the weekend. The results were mixed but interesting. The the headline seems to be that turnout was way up. Some of these nationalist parties that everybody was worried about did better. Moderates did very poorly. But the Green Party did well in some places. Like, What was the big takeaway for you when you checked out these elections? First of all, I think the main takeaway is like Europe is – right now, the principal battleground between, and I don't like calling it populism, it's basically right-wing nationalist politics, Mm -hmm. and everybody else. And this election has been seen for some time as kind of the litmus test, because the far right thought that they would do well in this election because they've been attacking the European Union for years, right? So the fact that it was a European Union election they thought would play in their favor because they thought they could gin up anti-Europe sentiment, anti-immigrant sentiment, and then get enough of their people elected Mm -hmm. to kind of grind the business of the European Parliament to a halt, which ironically then allows them to say, look how dysfunctional the European Union is. I actually think that they were generally positive results. This was not the right-wing populist wave that some of the more ambitious, you know, national leaders had anticipated. Basically, I think in general, the center held. They they did not get enough seats to really be able to kind of drive the agenda of the European Parliament. They're still around like, you know, 25 percent. If you look underneath the hood of the results, there are a couple interesting things. One, 
where did they do well? Mm -hmm. So unsurprisingly, countries like Hungary and Poland that have become kind of more right-wing nationalist, they did well. Italy was the standout. So this politician, Matteo Savini, who's the kind of leader of the far right in Italy, comes from the Northern Italy, you know, Le Northern League party, mm -hmm. very anti-immigrant, very, you know, the kind of vicious rhetoric, Trump-like rhetoric against immigrants. They did very well in Italy. That shows you that a country that's like right on the, you know, the border of the Mediterranean has a lot of immigration problems is more susceptible to the that message. But if you look at other places, particularly like Germany, which is usually the bellwether for European politics, there was kind of a groundswell for the alternatives. So the Greens, the Libertarians, like the, the non-fascists uh, did quite well in Germany and Northern Europe, in Spain, as we saw in the recent election. So in other words, this wave of, of nationalism didn't spread across all of Europe. It just came out of individual countries where the far right has gotten a foothold. Then the other interesting thing is not about the far right. It's about the left. And the Greens did very well in this election, the Green parties. And if you look at, again, Germany, the Greens actually poll better than the traditional center-left party in mm -hmm. Germany, the Social Democrats, which tells you that Europe is also going through a bit of what we're going through here, where their left is trying to figure out, okay, are we going to be the kind of traditional business-friendly center-left parties, or do people want something more... I don't know if radical is too strong a word for it, but certainly more aggressive in promoting social justice and standing up for immigration and you know climate change is obviously central to the Greens. And so what that tells you is that the left in Europe is going to have to sort out between the Greens and the traditional kind of social Democrat yeah. party. Yeah, I mean, I think I normally think that there's maybe some risk to trying to draw lessons from European elections to the U.S. one-to-one because -one, people yeah. do it in such a blunt way. Yeah. They're like, oh, the left is losing. Yeah. Therefore, you know, Trump will win again. But were there any global trends or macro trends or trajectories for these parties that you think might help us better understand changes in our own politics? I do because I, I, what you cannot ignore is how similar these trends are yeah. in the U.S. and Europe. It's basically a bunch of far-right figures like Trump and Orban who demagogue immigrants and attack institutions and attack elites and use that to get into power. And then a bunch of, of people on the left have been kind of knocked back on their heels and are trying to figure out how to get back up, right? And I think the thing you draw, one is the turnout was very high, I think, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So like, it's a signal that people are politically engaged. They yeah, get that the good. stakes are high, you know? And that's, I think, good because I think a lot of people, the, the right had driven up turnout. I think what you saw in that election is, People on the left turned out because they were worried about what's happening on the right. You know, So that, I think, probably does forecast what happened in 2018 and mm -hmm. what might happen in 2020 here is just more people are engaged. That's good. I think people in Europe have been very aggressive in pointing out the dangers of right-wing nationalism, probably more so even than here. Here, you know, we have all these debates about, you know, how much to take on the you know, Mueller report and impeachment. There, I think, the people who've sounded the alarm bells and offered a message of values, like these people don't represent our values on the right. Here are the values that we believe in. Those kind of appeals to the kind of core values of the European voter. You know, we, you know, we believe in the European Union and we believe in, yes, controls on immigration, but uh, diversity is a value. We believe in democracy as a value, the rule of law. Those appeals did well in Europe, just the kind of basic building blocks of democracy as part of a message. And then I think what you saw on the left is some people, again, trying to figure out how much can issues that people care about on the left, like climate change, galvanize voters. Mm -hmm. And the Greens are proving that it can. 
particularly young voters in Europe, turned out much higher than they did in the past. And I think some of that is these movements you've seen in Europe around climate change, like the, the school walkouts. I don't know if people saw yeah, this yeah. here, but hundreds of thousands of kids walking out of school to protest the need for action on climate. I think the Greens are proving that having an unabashedly progressive message about climate change and and economic fairness can turn people out. I think that's an, an interesting lesson too. Um, and you know, the main question is is, that, is is you know this question of populism that has been defined around immigration on the right. Um, you know, finding a language on economics and inequality. I didn't feel like they they necessarily were able to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so like in France, Macron's party didn't do very well. He's had trouble showing that he cares. I mean, being responsive to inequality. Macron's party lost to Marine Le Pen's party, right? Yeah. I mean, they got smoked by the far right. Yeah, after Italy, I thought France was the most concerning because Poland and Hungary, you expect maybe, but right. um, but you know, it's like a midterm election. People mm-hmm. vote against the incumbent. But again, I think you know, good lessons on mobilization of voters on having a values-driven message against the far right on activating your voters on issues like climate change, a little more work to be done on the kind of populist message around inequality. So it's not dissimilar from yeah, no. what we're seeing in the Democratic primary. Those are good silver linings. One other story from the these elections were that, I don't know how I'll say it, I mean, our friends in the UK are just a mess. So Prime Minister Theresa May resigned. Some people are floating Boris Johnson as the likely yeah. next prime minister in New York Times in particular. Then Nigel Farage's four-month-old Brexit party took 31% in the EU parliamentary elections. Like, I don't really even have a question here. It's just everything keeps getting worse. Well, all right, number one, this if I was European, I'd be like, why the fuck are the Brits even allowed to elect people to the European parliament? I, I'd be so angry. This is why... I think the Europeans are going to lose patience with these Brexit delays because, like, basically, you have this arsonist, Nigel Farage, this kind of racist, anti-immigrant arsonist who has one play in his book, and it's Brexit. And, you know, he gins up his people to vote for him. And now he's got this 31 percent block in the European Parliament from the U.K., of a country that wants to fucking leave. Yeah. So why the fuck are you allowed to be in the parliament to begin with if you if your whole message is just you want to leave? That, I think, is a warning sign that the Europeans can't put up with this weird situation where the Brits are still in but are trying to leave. Then May, I mean, what can you say? What, what a catastrophe. I, I continue to think that she did some things tactically wrong. Like she thought that she would wait till the very end of the deadline and then pop up with her deal and like force everybody to vote for it. And when she did, everybody voted against it. Mm-hmm. But the core question is like when the British people have to actually look what Brexit is, look at what it is, they don't like it. Yeah. And that's why it always fails. And that's actually not Theresa May's fault. No, I mean, it's not. I don't, and I, and I, Nigel yeah. Farage won't articulate what Brexit means to him yeah. in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And Boris Johnson has indicated – you know, who's like the Trump of, of – uh, he's a slightly more erudite Trump, um, complete with the weird hair and everything. But, um, you know, he said, you know, a no-deal Brexit is the closest thing to the will of the voters in the referendum. So mm-hmm. you get a Boris Johnson in there, a no-deal Brexit, which, as we've talked about, could be potentially catastrophic, becomes a much more real possibility, I think. Yeah, it's uh – not good. Nothing good. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger sat down with the FT and they asked him about Brexit and they were expecting some long answer. And he goes, here's what I do. Every single article that comes up on my iPad, I immediately erase it because it's all the same shit. Hello. <laughs> it's like a documentary that's going on too long. That's a pretty good quote. summary, Arnold. Yeah. yeah pretty yeah. good from Schwarzenegger. I didn't do an impression because 
that wouldn't have worked. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Did you see the guy drop kick, try to drop kick? Yeah, him and he and, just barely yeah, budged. Yeah, yeah. Pretty amazing. He's still got it. He's like he's, over 70. He's still a got big it. dude. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about Trump's trip to Japan for a minute. So Trump goes to Japan. He meets the new emperor. He plays golf with Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He went to a sumo wrestling match, which I have to be honest, looks pretty cool. Yeah, it's cooler than um, we did in Japan. Yeah, but he also revealed a huge split on North Korea policy. So Trump said that Kim Jong-un's ballistic missile tests don't bother him, and he refused to admit that they are a UN Security Council violation. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe had to meekly suggest at a joint press conference that, yes, this is a UN Security Council violation, but he did so in a way that was sort of carefully calibrated to not anger Trump. I'm just imagining the many trips we took to Korea or Japan where the press was looking for the most minute daylight on policy. This is about as fundamental uh, a policy split as I could imagine. I mean, it, it, it was pretty, truly remarkable. Yeah. And first of all, the facts are the facts. There was a ballistic missile launch. It is a violation of UN Security yeah, Council resolution. Many like, of them, actually. These aren't debatable. Like, you know, it's like Trump. It's like, you know, uh, well, I actually stand up here to say that two plus two is five. Like, well, and John Bolton's like, yes, I drafted this authorization that it violated. Yeah. And, and so this isn't like up for debate. And, and the fact that he's still like hugging Kim Jong-un as Kim Jong-un is giving him the finger and firing off missiles, he's so incredibly weak. I mean, I really, you know, and I saw you tweet this that like Beto had made this point that like, he keep continually sides with these dictators, and that's a sign of weakness. I'd like to see the Democratic candidates calling this out. This is crazy. Like, to have a president of the United States who's just been humiliated by a North Korean dictator firing off missiles, denying that a missile launch took place, denying that it's a violation of the Security Council resolution, just the denial of facts alone and is concerning. Now, move on to the foreign policy piece. Japan lives right next to North Korea. Like, they are in the crosshairs of these ballistic missiles. Like, even mm-hmm. if they're not intercontinental ballistic missiles that can hit us, they can hit Japan. They have nuclear weapons and missiles that can hit Japan, our ally. We have a treaty obligation to them, right? We are literally their security guarantee. And for the president of the United States to stand there and say, actually, I don't think that this is a violation, and I like Kim Jong-un, say nicer things about Kim Jong-un that he'd ever say about the prime minister of Japan, I'm telling you that is a earthquake in Japan and across Asia, because what it says to every U.S. ally in Asia, and we have several, is that you can't count on us. Our word doesn't matter. The president of the United States doesn't give a shit, and he cares more about his relationship with his murderous dictator than he cares about the multi-decade commitments America's made to you. That we've gotten a lot out of those commitments, by the way, right? I mean, basically, the security and stability of Asia... Mm-hmm. the growth of the global economy, all these things that, that we benefit from having stable democratic allies. And so what does that mean? That means if you're Japan over time, you're going to find ways to hedge against us. You're going to fall potentially more into the orbit of the Chinese, right? The J- Japanese and Chinese have deep rivalries. But if you're Abe, you're sitting there thinking like, well, I better call Xi Jinping because this guy is fucking crazy, you know? And I think we've undersold the extent to which this degree of recklessness on the global stage is both making us less secure because you've got this dictator in North Korea who can thinks he can do whatever he wants and is just completely collapsing our our leadership position because if allies can't count on you they will turn in another direction. Yeah. Well, look, I'm glad you brought up this I, uh, the question of how Democrats should take this on. We talked a little bit about this on Pod Save America. If you had 30 seconds to go at Trump at a debate, what what angle would you take? Would it be weakness, ineptitude. I mean, when I think about their their objectives, like their big 
regime change play in Venezuela has failed. He said he'd get all our troops out of Afghanistan. He lied. He did not. He sent more. North Korea, the diplomacy there is crumbling. I mean, like, what do you think is the best way to make this case? Yeah, I think you take something that everybody already believes about Trump, which is he is reckless and impulsive and unfit to be commander in chief. And that's having real world consequences. That is hurting you in your pocketbook because of his crazy China trade war, which is driving up prices and hurting American farmers and workers. It is making us less safe Mm -hmm. because he's being taken advantage of by nuclear armed dictators like Kim Jong-un. And it risks getting us into a war in a place like Iran or Venezuela when he said he'd keep us out of the wars. So his reckless and impulsive nature is making you less safe and is hurting you in the pocketbook. And then the second piece is this man is walking away from all the values that Americans have fought for, struggled for, and led for, for generations. He is more comfortable with authoritarian, murderous dictators than with our allies. And America needs to be America again in the world and promote our values and stand with our friends and stand against our enemies. And this president won't do that. And and that's a combination of the fact that he looks out for his own interests and, frankly, is corruptible, uh, and because he's just not fit to lead the, the strongest uh, democracy in the world. I, I think that you know, the, those two, the, the reckless and impulsive connected to real-world consequences, and then the kind of undemocratic nature of his leadership, mm-hmm. there's lots of off-roads to those two core arguments, but I think those are the two core arguments, right? He's hurting you because of his recklessness and making you less safe. And he's not standing up for the values that Americans care about. Yeah, I agree. And I do think Democrats really need to go at this because he's his numbers on foreign policy are, are better than his general numbers. And that's just because, I think, of a vacuum of an argument against him. So we did a poll. So the organization that, that, that Jake Sullivan and I have, National Security Action, we commissioned a poll on national security in the 2020 election. And what you find is – if we message tested arguments, the arguments against his foreign policy, if you make them really register, right? And it's in this space of he's reckless and impulsive, and that makes you less safe and less secure. Uh, he cozies up to dictators and turns his back on our allies. Um, if, if you actually make the argument, you get up into like the 60s wow. in terms of like susceptibility to it. You're right. On the surface, his numbers are okay. They're not great, but you know people don't follow these issues closely. You have to make the argument. Yeah. He's going to be making an argument. I crushed ISIS. You know, I made this breakthrough with Kim Jong-un that prevented war. You know, I made America respected again in the world. All three of those things are wrong. <laughs> you know, like Obama basically started the effort that crushed ISIS. Uh, the, the North Korea thing has been a disaster. Uh, we're less respected in the world than we've ever been. But he's going to make that argument. So you have to come back at him with something. And, yeah. But you can connect it to your domestic message. You know, if you're Elizabeth Warren, you've made a whole message about corruption at home. You can extend that abroad, too. Yeah, I agree. And Trump's, you know, to the extent that Trump has any genius is that he knows that people are going to remember that first Hanoi summit where yeah. all the cameras were there and, and, and you know, pretty diplomatic backdrop and not follow up on the substance of whether a deal worked. But uh, speaking of Trump's uh, favorite authoritarian murderers, last week, the Trump administration declared an emergency to bypass Congress and expedite arms sales to the Saudis and Emiratis, among many others. Secretary Pompeo valued the arms sale at $8.1 billion. The emergency, of course, was Iran. Uh, This came as Trump announced that he'd be sending another 1,500 U.S. troops to the Middle East to counter Iran. Ben, how unusual is it to use this emergency declaration to force through an arms sale? And like, 
Is there a reasonable argument that the Saudis don't have enough arms? And is there any way we can keep them from using these in Yemen? Uh, well, one, it's very unusual, right? Particularly of this size and scale. This is a billion? massive arms sale, right? Uh, two, there is no fucking emergency with Iran. Like this is the only emergency with Iran is the one we are creating yeah. by deploying a bunch of shit to the Middle East and threatening them and you know pulling out of the Iran deal. And the Saudis and the Emiratis, like, let's unpack this. What, what are they going to do? Are they going to attack Iran? I don't know. Like, what, what, what if it if it is an emergency related to Iran, then. Why are we selling them $8 billion for the weapons? It doesn't even make any sense. No, they're going to use this in Yemen. So to get, of course, they're going to use this in Yemen, right? And and they connect everything in Yemen to Iran when that is that is not the case, right? There's a civil war in Yemen. Yes, there happens to be one party that the Iranians have been aligned with, but it's not like Iran is like fighting a war in Yemen. There's a civil war in Yemen and Iran, like Saudi Arabia and the UAE and many other countries, have proxies in that in that fight. So this is a bunch of bullshit. Uh, it, it shows you how it, it's kind of a perfect window into the, the dark heart of the Trump foreign policy, right? Because one, it shows you his complete subservience to the Saudis, that he's shoveling all these weapons to them. Two, it shows you how much they don't give a shit about human beings because these weapons will be used to kill people and accelerate a famine uh, in Yemen. Three, it's part of their crazy Iran is the boogeyman behind everything in the world. But then also there's this growing trend of like if he doesn't like the Congress won't give him what he wants, he just ignores Congress, mm-hmm. right? So this is in a direct line to the, the emergency you know, around the wall. It's like Congress says no to me, so I'll just say, well, I'll ignore Congress and declare an emergency. Like this is being used again and again, and it should should throw up some red flags. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. We come back. We're going to update you guys on that crazy video sting operation in Austria, some news out of Turkey, some weird NSA hacking tools that are ruining people's day in Baltimore, of all places, and then the age-old debate Donald Trump has of steam versus magnets. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. 
The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. All right, we're back. So last week we told you about this wild sting operation that captured two right-wing Austrian politicians hanging out in Ibiza with people they thought were connected to a Russian oligarch and offering government contracts in exchange for political support. So this is a good news story because the Austrian parliament has removed the chancellor in a no-confidence vote. He'd forced a coalition with these two goobers who were hanging out in Ibiza. Is our old friend, I forgot his name, I think he's Accountability? Yeah, this yeah, is a yeah, weird yeah, yeah, yeah. This is great. Yeah. You blow the whistle, you expose corruption, and then the house of cards collapse. People don't like right? it. Yeah, people get upset, and then shit falls apart, and then there's an election, and you choose a new government. It seems like it's a pretty good way to deal with the right wing nationalists. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I have nothing better to say, but you know, if there's a lot of um, listeners out there who have the ability to set up a cool video sting operation in Ibiza for a yeah, right wing yeah, nationalist, kudos to the world those who uh, in Ibiza, I guess. <laughs> uh, not, not that I know who they are, but I. The only other thing I'd say is like it's a point that. This is why Democrats shouldn't stop trying to expose corruption, right? Yeah. I mean, because, like, you know, it, it's worth it to go in search of what you think is happening <laughs> because, you know, you may come up with the one thing that does break the camel's back. I mean, we don't have parliamentary systems so one collapse the government, but it shows it like, you know, actually trying to ferret out the corruption and expose it to people rather than just kind of talking about it uh, is is worthwhile. Yeah, it's good stuff. Took a creep to Ibiza. It's like that Mike Posner song. Turkey, less good story. So the international community is criticizing Turkey for a decision to rerun an election that we talked about previously on the show. Yeah. The Istanbul mayoral election, uh, Prime Minister Erdogan's party lost a bunch of municipal elections in an area where that's usually his base of power. But he basically just refused to accept defeat and is now calling for a do-over. I guess my question is, at what point do we need to just acknowledge that Turkey is becoming a dictatorship and that Erdogan is a fascist? Yeah, I think we need to do that. Um, I, you know, I, I think that the extent to which, you know, usually what happens in, in these drifts towards authoritarianism is 
everything goes but elections at first. You know, it's like the rule of law kind of falls apart and independence of the media falls apart. And, and it's, it's basically a democracy and elections only. Mm-hmm. But now he's saying, like, we're not even going to – I mean, they, they didn't even really give a reason. It's no. like they lost the election, so they just said, well, there's some irregularities and we have to hold them again. And they stripped all the power from the mayor who got elected. That's just straight-up fucking authoritarianism. And I think we have to be more outspoken about this. And by the way, be more unabashed. Like Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Let's take those two examples. It's time for the U.S., I think – you know, to go farther than we would, were in the past, to stand by our values, in part because this question of democracy versus authoritarianism is so prevalent around the world, that things we might have been hesitant to do before we should do. So with Saudi Arabia, we should not be selling them any arms, period. And I, I you know, if, if we feel like there's some risk in that, I'd rather take that risk. Turkey, I think it's time, you know, we always, it comes at us of like, aren't you nervous about mm-hmm. Turkey potentially moving away from NATO? Well, you know what? It might be time for us to take that leverage out for a bit of a spin and say NATO is an alliance of de- democracies. And in fact, if Turkey doesn't get its shit together, then we're going to think about suspending some of the things that NATO does with you. I'm like, like we should be more consistent. I, I obviously didn't like the trade-offs, you know, that we had to make in government, right, uh, because of these things, and there are all kinds of security interests with Turkey. But you just get to a point where you can't ignore somebody's just invalidating elections totally. uh, after taking away basically all kinds of, you know, the independence of the media and the judiciary. We got to use our leverage. Other countries use their leverage. Russia does. China does. Like to say like, no, you're in an alliance of democracies. And if you won't act democratically, like we're going to take a look at this. Yeah. We can't just baby step around Erdogan because they're in NATO and we want them to be a part. I mean, at some point we have to stand for at some At some values. point we have to stand for NATO is supposed to be an alliance of democratic countries. Yeah. That's part of the whole thing about NATO. And I would rather have an alliance that has the credibility of everybody in that being a democracy than putting up with goons like Orban and, and Erdogan. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, two sort of fun-ish stories to close the day out. This was a wild piece in the New York Times. So apparently a leaked piece of malware designed by the NSA called Eternal Blue, whoever names these things, it just kills me. It leaked out and it's being used to attack local city governments and hold them for ransom, including Baltimore, which is, I don't know, right down the road from the NSA, kind of problematic. Um, I don't know how any of these NSA tools actually exist, but it does remind you that we are you know, developing these weapons that can be emailed. It's this unprecedented thing, yeah, right? You, in the, yeah. pa- the Pentagon can't email you like a, a missile, right? It feels almost more akin to like a biological weapon or something that could easily be transported. So I guess the question I have, and I'm really walking back the idea this was a fun question, uh, but it's like, is there enough oversight over these sort of tools and activities? No. No. Like, so here's the context. When the Snowden disclosures came out, I remember reading all this information about NSA tools and things they were doing. Be like, whoa! I had no fucking clue. Yeah, I mean, so I felt no, like, oh yeah, it's it, not, and, and it's not like Barack Obama knew either, you know? right? So if people like you and me are sitting in the White House and the highest levels of the national security staff have no idea what's happening at a more granular level in these intelligence agencies, like who does? Well, because it's so complicated that you know what you know in the White House and is like what the intelligence is that comes to you and what the tasking is you're giving them. You don't know what code they're writing or what tools they're using to hack into networks. I think without disclosing anything in particular that happened under us, like this phenomenon happened under us where some tool that they had got out, right? And, you know, try to figure out a way to make this. Do you watch Mr. Robot? Oh, yeah. Great (laughs) show. Great show, right? It's actually a pretty good window into basically the idea that 
there's a, a subset of people in this world who are really smart about I was going to say computers and the internet, but I sound like a fucking moron. <laughs> but I mean, who are about this world of yeah. how systems work and networks? They work understand the thing that they, we just they, don't that even I don't understand. And, and 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 basically, if the if the NSA hacks into something or has a tool inserted into something, a really good hacker can see that, maybe reverse engineer it, maybe steal it. I mean, I'd probably just oversimplified it. But basically, if you think about the few thousand geeks in the world who really understand this shit, some of them work at the NSA, some of them work for the Chinese, some of them work for the Russians, and some of them are just like, you know, anonymous hackers, literally that group anonymous. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the danger is, you know, the NSA is doing all this stuff to get into all these systems and it's not like there aren't other people who can see that and who might be able to learn from that and, and do something themselves. And then what you have is this kind of subterranean war taking place between different foreign governments and hackers. And, and we sometimes get overconfident, I think, that what we are doing to surveil others won't fall into the wrong hands. And it has now happened repeatedly. So and, many times. And so I think the bottom line is you got at it. There needs to be some way for there to be a little more oversight here about what is being done, what the risks are. What, obviously, the risks of civil liberties, which we focus on after Snowden, but the yeah. risks to our security too. Because the NSA has the advantage of doing stuff that not many other people understand. And in a vacuum, that can lead to big mistakes, as we've seen. Right? Yeah. Um, but also, in a, in a structure set up where your access to information that is classified is based on your need to know. Right, so there's a sh- ever shrinking pool of people that know about the most sensitive NSA systems and practices and tools. And look, I'll just say it: like a lot of those people are probably uh, a little older, a little yeah. less familiar with yeah. computers in the digital age yeah. than, let's say, the people writing the code at the NSA. And it's like I, I wonder if the oversight to capability level needs to be recalibrated in some way. Yeah, and because you know the, what used to kind of haunt me a little bit in government is you know we get the pdb right and get all this intelligence i never i rarely did i know exactly how they got it (laughs) you know what i mean like uh you know they don't tell you well here's the origin of all this right and the amount of time it would have taken me as a white house official to be like well i'd like to know i'd like to be briefed on you know what's the tool this is using or who's the human source and you know you don't have to be treated with such skepticism and people too. would be like why do you need to know that why do you need mm-hmm. to know that and and i just think that whether it, part of this probably involves congress and the intelligence committees but in part of this may be internal but there needs to be oversight on how we collect intelligence not just like what we're trying to collect because this kind of keeps happening um <laughs> and and I, I hate to put it on the nsa because like the, in defense of the nsa right here's what they would tell us they'd be like well you all expect us to to you know the the policymakers expect all this intel right. and so That's we're right. just trying to get it and so what it, you need is someone to tell them yes but and this would obama did after snowden yes i want intelligence but i don't want you to spy on the leaders of any of our allies and so we made this rule like you can't do that right and then they stopped doing that like there needs to be someone who will go underneath the hood and look at the how are we doing this Otherwise, this is going to keep happening. Yeah, right. Because none of us can truly remember what it was like in the months and years, I guess, right after 9-11 when everyone was terrified of the next horrifying attack. But we stomped on the gas and no one has pulled their foot off. Yeah, and shoveled money at these people. For and, 15, you know, 20 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's scary. Okay. Actual fun story. So a lighter note. Apparently during the Japan trip, Trump was walking around on an aircraft carrier with a bunch of U.S. service members. And he was polling them on whether they preferred 
traditional steam-powered catapults on aircraft carriers or electromagnetic systems. And then he went out and publicly said that he's worried that the electromagnetic systems don't work in the bad weather. So I guess, is this the normal procurement process? You have some like nearly 80-year-old president bumbling around on an aircraft carrier, and that's how you decide how to make the next generation of uh, Navy hardware? <laughs> I mean, the... <laughs> <laughs> So um, there's so many things, so many things to say about this. Um, I mean, the the first thing is, like, what does Donald Trump even know? What the fuck that is? Does I, he even know like what he just said aloud? What, I, like the word, the word salad that came out of his mouth about steam and electromagnetic and and like no, right? No. So let let's just start from the premise that he has no idea what the fuck he's talking about. None, right? Because that's that's an important baseline for us to establish, right? Number two. Presidents don't normally get down into the weeds of the functioning of aircraft carriers and aircraft like that is not like Jimmy Carter was like a, you know, actually an expert on these things. And he didn't fucking do that. Right. Uh, I, I Why Donald Trump thinks th- this is a guy. The height of this guy's engineering capacity has been the size of the gold fucking letters that he puts on his buildings and the shade of gold that he paints his fucking toilet, right? (laughs) And now this guy is going to take the most important tool in the U.S. military arsenal, our aircraft carriers, and make some, like, flip decision that will probably affect, like, the entire fleet of u.s aircraft carriers and the entire procurement network will be changed and the way that like planes fucking land on these things will change decades long process yeah yeah like and by the way i'm just gonna make a pretty safe bet that whoever decided how this should work is smarter than donald trump (laughs) like whoever looked at this my guess like yeah whoever it is whatever nerd sat in a room and were like well should we use steam or should we you know like that they actually had some data that informed the decision about the the engineering of a a billion dollars worth of aircraft carriers it is so crazy just walk around and do a straw poll of a bunch of sailors (laughs) (laughs) remember when we were accused of micromanaging the military I, I wasn't even going to go there because, like, I, I'm just imagining, you know, Barack Obama yeah. coming out and announcing, you know, that he was changing the. Bob Gates would have wrote a whole book on this one. Oh my gosh, the you know the the pearl clutching among Bob <laughs> would be out of control. <laughs> out of control. You know? All right, that's it for our portion. But when we come back, my conversation with Ron Klain about managing the international response to Ebola. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 
Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. I am so excited to have on the line Ron Klain. Ron is someone who is able to do literally everything in politics. He was chief of staff to two vice presidents, and he has run the debate prep for like every Democratic presidential candidate in history. And he is a guy, when you get the call from the White House that says, hey, can you come please coordinate the Ebola response to the worst outbreak uh, we've ever seen, says yes. So Ron, thank you for doing the show. Thank you for answering this call as well. Thank you, Tommy. It's great to be here with you. It's great to talk to you. So, you know, the the circumstances are less happy than the introduction. Uh, There is a serious Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I believe it's the 10th outbreak in the DRC. What, in your opinion, makes this outbreak different and how concerned are you? So it's very different. I mean, um, let's put it in historical context. Uh, We've known about Ebola for roughly 40 years, back to the 1970s. The typical outbreak has 100 cases. Uh, before 2014, no outbreak had ever had more than 500 cases. So this outbreak, which is about 1,900 cases already and still going, is the second largest one in history. Wow. And by a factor of 4x over the third largest one in history and still growing. The only thing we've ever seen remotely like it was the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014. And so this is a very, very serious uh, situation. Um, you know, uh, lives obviously are being lost. Uh, healthcare workers are losing their lives as well. Uh, it's spreading. And, uh, you know, Ebola is kind of like a forest fire. Until you put it out, you don't really know how much worse still it's going to get. But I will say this right now, the epidemiological curve for the current outbreak looks so- somewhat similar to where we were in the spring of 2014 with the West African outbreak in 2014. So, you know, it is, it's, it's, it's accelerating, but could really take off much worse in the coming weeks or months. And this could really go from being a catastrophe to really a, a real global nightmare. Yikes. I should note that we're, we're recording this on Friday, May 24th. We'll release it next week. So how much do you, re- do you attribute the severity of the outbreak to attacks on medical workers as opposed to, say, you know, just a, a generally weakened public health infrastructure and a, and a virus that is deadly and spreads? There's no question that the circumstances on the ground have contributed, because what's really surprising about this is that between 2014 and today, the world's developed uh, an effective vaccine uh, to fight Ebola. And the common conventional wisdom was, after that vaccine became available in 2016, that we'd never see something like this ever again, that there'd be a small outbreak, 
the public health authorities would come in, identify the area where the outbreak was raging. They'd vaccinate all the people uh, who had contact with the people who had Ebola, and the uh, outbreak would be extinguished. That's what mm-hmm. happened, actually, in another part of Congo uh, earlier in 2018. We saw one of those incidents, and after really a couple hundred, after well, roughly 100 cases, the thing was extinguished by using the vaccine. So what's going on here is a very special case, and it's really driven by the uh, both the politics and the violence on the ground. Uh, this is a part of Congo that is... Uh, kind of opposed, where the dominant political factions are opposed to the central government, and there's a lot of distrust of the central government. Uh, plus, there's a lot of, uh, of violence, armed groups, and that's led to attacks on the healthcare workers. It's led to a place where uh, U.S. government responders, like from the CDC, are not operating in the area anymore, and uh, suspicion, hostility, uh, resentment, uh, a view that the responders uh, aren't really helping but are hurting. And that kind of um, instability has definitely played a major role in how this has unfolded. Yikes. So how do you think the Trump administration is handling the response to this current outbreak? Well, so, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a, a mixed bag. So uh, you may recall back in 2014 mm-hmm. when we were uh, fighting Ebola, uh, really the, the person who, who did as much as possible to make the situation worse and exacerbate it was Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, he tweeted attacks on President Obama for bringing uh, health care workers who had Ebola, Western health care workers, back to the U.S. for treatment. He called for all kinds of outrageous and non-scientific-based measures and responses and really inflamed uh, public uh, fear. And, um, and so that was a reason to think that when President Trump faced one of these situations, it would really be horrible and awful. And one other thing, which was after I finished working on the Ebola response, President Obama uh, created a permanent position of epidemic response coordinator in the NSC staff mm-hmm. that had continued for the first year of the Trump administration. Uh, Admiral Tim Zimmer, a former Bush appointee, was put in the place by General McMaster when he was head of the NSC. When Bolton came in, he abolished the unit, he abolished the position. So uh, Trump's history, plus the absence of any White House leadership, led us to fear the worst. So what's happened? On the one hand, I think the Trump administration hasn't done anything outrageously bad or horrible like you might expect from Trump. Uh, and indeed, Trump did allow uh, a healthcare worker, an American healthcare worker, who was uh, uh, suspected of having contracted Ebola in the response, come back to the U.S. for treatment, notwithstanding his attack on that in 2014. The uh, head of the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Redfield, has been to the region. He's looked around. Uh, the U.S. has written modest checks to support the response. We've kind of done, you know, decent, average, fine, but this is becoming a situation where we're going to need to do more than decent, average, fine to do our part as the global leader in global health security. Uh, instead of pulling our people out of the region, we need to be getting our people into the region. Instead of kind of having a benign, uh, just kind of modest response, uh, we, we really need to be engaging in diplomacy mm-hmm. to create the kind of security environment where the responders can work more safely. We need to write a bigger check to the response groups, both the NGOs working on the response front lines and helping the WHO fund it. Um, we, we have historically been the global leader in global health security. And in response to something like this, now we're just another country. And, um, and that's, that's a shame. That's going to cost lives here. 
And, um, and uh, I don't think the world can do it without us playing a more active role. Yeah. Well, so let's flash back to 2014 and talk about your time when you were coordinating the U.S. government response to, you know, what was frankly a much larger Ebola outbreak. So, right. you know, the day after you get that job, a New York-based doctor tests positive for Ebola. The guy rode the subway. He went bowling. I mean, it must have been terrifying. How did you get a handle on the crisis and begin to coordinate a global response? Well, so, uh, you know, it, it starts with uh, having a president who looks at this the right way. Uh, president Obama did two things that were really critical. First, he put the U.S. in the middle of the action in West Africa to stop the disease where it was. He made a historic decision to deploy U.S. troops to fight an epidemic, Operation United Assistance, sending in the security and logistic support that the military could provide to help empower the response in West Africa. We sent 10,000 civilians to West Africa to help fight the response. I mean, obviously, in the end, the West Africans themselves were the heroes who turned this thing around on the ground. But the U.S.'s leadership and generosity was the, the backbone of that response. President Obama committed to that. Here at home, the president committed to a science-based approach. We wrote rules for how someone like Craig Spencer would be uh, treated uh, and took an approach to it that wasn't based on fear or prejudice, but based on what the president's chief scientific advisors were telling him and making science the preeminent uh, decision-making principle, whether it was good politics or bad, played a key role in the success we had in managing uh, Dr. Spencer's case and in safeguarding the U.S. from other cases and in getting the U.S. ready to deal with the possibility that more cases would come to our country or other infectious, dangerous infectious diseases in the future would come to our country. President Obama made a big investment in that, and that's made all of us a lot safer. So, Ron, when you were, like, I assume holding meetings in the Situation Room to coordinate yep. the response, I mean, what what components of the U.S. government were in the room? And, and when you look back at the response and how effective it ultimately was, were there any specific things you guys did that you say that was highly effective, we should be doing that again today? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, one, well, we had virtually, I think we had uh, uh, 13 or 14 agencies in the room. Uh, it was a, uh, when the president called it a whole-of-government response, and it really was. We had as I said, the military on the ground in West Africa, lots of contractors and personnel from USAID, uh, from uh, CDC, uh, the great scientists at NIH developing this vaccine that we got to test at the very end of the 2014 outbreak that's played a key role. Since then, you know, a lot of work by the Customs and Border Patrol to mm -hmm. monitor how we were getting people into the country and make sure we were identifying potential cases when they arrived here. And in partnership with state and local governments, that were uh, doing a lot of the contact tracing here in the U.S. of potential cases here in the U.S., as well as a lot of work with the private sector on uh, both kind of uh, philanthropic uh, responses to what was going on in West Africa, as well as the uh, healthcare providers in the U.S. to uh, build uh, uh, 10 Ebola treatment centers in the U.S. that now are uh, repurposed for potential dangerous infectious diseases to really expand our ability to test for potential uh, diseases and to develop therapeutics and vaccines and all these things. And so it really was a massive, massive effort. Uh, Congress also very quickly appropriated $6 billion, uh, half of which was spent domestically, half of which was spent in West Africa to really uh, fund and power this response. You know, look, I think there are a couple lessons from that. One, 
uh, there's no real replacement for presidential leadership. I mean, you know, Tommy, from having worked in this bureaucracy, to, to turn around all the things we turned around in a relatively short period of time, to go from uh, three to ten Ebola treatment centers, from uh, testing in three to 44 states, to uh, go through a network of uh, over 80 um, uh, screening centers, to, uh, you know, all the things we did in 60 days, uh, you know, I w- I'm a good manager. I'm quite proud of my work on it. And, and more importantly, I had an amazing team at the NSC. But in the end, it really comes down to uh, people doing it because they know the president wants it done. And and what we see now is really an absence of that presidential leadership. But I think to the extent you talk to people, so like I talked to former colleagues who are still in the bureaucracy, you know, their basic approach is to hope that Trump doesn't really notice and hope that Trump doesn't engage. That's obviously a very different thing, a very different situation. Uh, than we had with President yeah. Obama. Oof. And you know, I think the other takeaway from it is, um, I, I hope everyone would take away from it, this is a really interconnected globe. Uh, this year is the 100th anniversary of the largest uh, single casualty event in U.S. history, which was not World War I or World War II, but the Spanish influenza outbreak of 1918. 600,000 Americans died in a year from that pandemic. And uh, it's an event we don't talk about, something we don't really remember, but we're at risk of a repeat of something like that any time, any day, unless we take the kinds of systems we started to build in the Obama administration and invest in global health security around the world and increased uh, resilience of our healthcare system here in the U.S., that risk remains. Yeah. So, Ron, you, you might have noticed that our political debates in this country can be uh, trite and stupid. Yeah. Um, and the challenge there, as you well know, is that stupid political attacks can lead to bad policy outcomes. So case in point, I was reading an article about your tenure as a Bolazar. The government was having trouble early on reaching individuals who came to the U.S. from West Africa because their cell phones didn't work once they got in the U.S. So the CDC says, hey, let's give these guys, men and women, temporary phones so we can reach them. Seems simple, seems obvious, but the proposal reminded people of a made-up racist controversy years earlier that claimed Obama had a program called Obama Phones that gave special cell phones to welfare recipients. It was nonsense for a variety of reasons that don't really matter or aren't worth getting into here, but it does matter to me that that kind of political consideration was even raised at a meeting, and I know it was raised by well-meaning people because I know all the people that were in those meetings. I mean, how often did politics like that interfere with smart policy choices? And, and how did you work through that? And how do you think we can, I don't know, change the system or the structure to eliminate that idiocy from entering the debate it, ever again? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, things like that came up every day. And, um, and uh, not to be overly simplistic about it, but uh, we got through them because the president of the United States made a decision to put policy before politics and on that one in particular, looked myself and Dr. Tom Frieden, the head of the CDC in the eye, and said, look, if it's going to save lives and make the American people safer to hand out these cell phones, then it's not even a close call for me. And if people want to give me political grief for it, I'll take the political grief. You guys go do the right thing. And, um, you know, and that really made all the difference in the world. It did save lives in West Africa and did uh, help us bend the curve of the epidemic faster and did uh, save a lot of lives probably around the world too. And, and there's just no substitute for that kind of leadership um, at the top. Now, and it's not just uh, these kind of petty political considerations. It's the broad political themes of our time that are working against uh, health security. So in 2016, uh, after the Ebola outbreak in West Africa was, was defeated, uh, we had a new infectious disease outbreak in this hemisphere, 
Zika, mm-hmm. which was causing massive numbers of babies born with a horrible condition, microcephaly, in South America and really ravaged the island of Puerto Rico, U.S. Commonwealth. And President Obama and his team got ahead of that and went to Congress in February of 2016, before it really spread uh, in, in, the, in the northern part of, of our hemisphere, and said, hey, we need money to fight this disease. We need to do these things to fight this disease. And I hate to say it, but a Republican Congress took that very, very slowly because they had an attitude. I used to hear this all the time when I'd speak out about Zika, that, oh, Zika's a problem for immigrants. Hmm. Why don't we just keep the immigrants out? If we keep the immigrants out, we'll keep the disease out. Wow. Now, there is no evidence that immigrants, more than Americans who are going uh, to see the World Cup in Brazil uh, or to tour in South and Central America, were bringing it here. But the anti-immigrant sentiment um, really uh, drove this. And if you go about look, this is also at the time Trump was banging on the wall and the idea that we needed a wall. And often you often hear in Trump's language about immigrants, this discussion about diseases, immigrants bringing diseases here. That anti-immigrant sentiment bends U.S. policy in a bad direction that prevents us from doing the things we should do. As a result, we were late to respond to Zika. Uh, For the first time in our history, the Centers for Disease Control issued a travel warning against travel to part of the continental United States. They warned pregnant women not to travel to southeast Florida in uh, 2016 because of the risk of contracting Zika in our own country. That was a completely preventable public health risk if we had made the kinds of investments President Obama had asked for that were resisted largely because of this anti-immigrant sentiment. Wow, that is depressing. One thing Trump isn't dealing with right now, I think, is just the alarmist, irresponsible media coverage of the Ebola outbreak. I mean, that could be, as you alluded to earlier, because in 2014, he was part of the problem and tweeting irresponsible nonsense that drove some of this coverage. But when you look back to the coverage of the Ebola outbreak in 2014, what did the media get wrong? And how do you think that news outlets should correct for some of those errors this time around as they begin to focus on what's happening in the in Congo? Well, look, I think uh, people are right to be scared of scary things. And there's nothing wrong with the media uh, reporting on the fact that some scary things are happening and there's some risk here. I think the challenge in the circumstance is keeping that risk in context. And uh, uh, it wasn't wrong to say that people in America might have gotten Ebola. We are preparing for a handful of cases here. Um, but uh, that got blown out of proportion. And I think the, 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 the problem here was that um, a very uh, small percentage chance of a very bad thing got covered very badly. Dr. Tony Fauci, who was the head of the Infectious Disease Centers at NIH and a great American hero, uh, you know, used to tell us that a lot of the public coverage of Ebola in 2014 remind him of the early days of the coverage of AIDS, hmm. where people said, like, oh, I'm not going to go out to dinner in Greenwich Village because I have a gay waiter. Uh, you know, like, he may touch my plate and I may get AIDS from him touching my plate. And a combination of misinformation and fear was driving a lot of panic. And we saw the same thing in 2014 around Ebola. And look, it's complicated because we couldn't say, look, there is 0% chance that someone's going to get Ebola here because there wasn't 0% chance or that there's 0% chance that you might uh, encounter someone. And although Ebola transmission is very, very, very hard, comes from bodily fluids, you know, there, there, there were risks here, which we were managing and controlling 
but we couldn't promise were zero. And I think that's a hard situation for folks to deal with. It's important, though, for the media to do better on this because someday we are going to face a situation where accurate information is going to be the difference between life or death. It's not just going to be politics or you know, public fear. It's going to be getting people to make the right choices and understand the right ways to be safe. And, um, and I think the public health community needs to get better about communicating about that, and the media gets, needs to get better informed and more responsible at how they, how they deal with those circumstances. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's why when they they named you to this Ebola czar position, I thought that's actually a a wonderful fit because in my experience, you know, there are some incredible, uh, life-saving, brilliant doctors out in the world. They often tend to be people that don't communicate (laughs) the things they're working on well to people with smaller brains like me. So we need uh, translators. Yeah, look, I think that um, the president made a choice to bring in someone who was not a doctor, who was not a scientist because he had the best doctors and the best scientists in the world right. working on this problem. We had two big challenges in the fall of 2014. Our agencies weren't acting together quickly enough. The interagency process wasn't really working. We were confronting all these questions of first impression, and there wasn't really a good policy process to resolve that. And so he needed someone uh, who knew the government, didn't know, have to know the science, but knew how to make the government work to kind of make these things go faster? How can we get more responders on the ground in West Africa more quickly? How can we get the Army to do more? How can we get HHS to do more? And I think, uh, you know, he thought I had that. And then we needed a better way of talking to people about it in the country to tamp down the fear a bit and to engage state and local governments and private sector responders to step up and to make the contributions we needed them to make. And, you know, that's the key thing, I think, of one of these responses. The scientists will always do the science, uh, but for uh, for uh, the U.S. government to be effective, uh, the government needs to kind of do its part well, and we need to communicate well. And last thing I'll say is we also have to remember we respond with our health care system, which is different than most of the other health care systems in the world. Our system's much more pluralistic. Uh, uh, the U.K. has a national health care system. If they want to send 1,000 medical professionals to West Africa to fight Ebola, Someone picks up the phone and calls the National Health Service and says, send 1,000 people. Uh, our healthcare workers work for private companies. They work for public companies. They work for nonprofits. They work for all kinds of different kinds of entities. They, they, aren't, uh, they, they aren't like collectively managed. And he, even here in our country, uh, our system is regulated by state officials, by federal officials. One, we had an, uh, you know, an incident that got a lot of publicity, which was President Obama made a science-based decision about how people could travel into the country and, and how we would track them once they came into the country. And, uh, you know, the governor of New Jersey, the governor of New York, made a very different decision and started quarantining people. And in our federalist system, that's their, I mean, that is their decision to make. They have the legal authority to make that decision. But it makes having a unified national response, obviously, a lot more difficult. Yeah. So we talked a lot about the U.S. government and the, the government response you coordinated. How effective are international organizations like the World Health Organization or the UN? Like, what's their role in, in a crisis like this? So it's interesting. Back in 2014, uh, the WHO was a disaster, and they really they they were late to call the world to action. A lot of their early uh, statements were incorrect. Uh, a lot of their ideas about what should be done were wrong. They were disorganized. It really really weren't that helpful. The UN stepped up to fill that with an emergency response mission, that too was not really that effective. Well-intentioned, but not well-organized, not well-managed. Uh, I'd say both those institutions are doing better now. 
Uh, the WHO has new leadership. Uh, they've been extremely transparent this time. Um, they've really, uh, you know, kind of organized uh, or set up the right battle plan this time. The UN has now stepped up to agree to do more. And so that's all improved. I, I give a lot of credit to the WHO for its improvement. But I think that there's a big misconception about this whole thing, which is the WHO is not a response organization. It's a regulatory organization. It says, hey, there's an outbreak over here. We, 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 we've, we've decided that it, that's what it is. And we're, issu- and we're issuing out a call, essentially, for people to respond. The WHO doesn't have large numbers of people. It doesn't employ the kinds of massive numbers of doctors and nurses you'd send. On the ground in, West a- in eastern Congo right now, it's basically groups like Doctors Without Borders and um, the International Rescue Committee uh, and other NGOs that are actually doing the treatment and training uh, the local healthcare workers and how to do the treatment and so on and so forth. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really strange situation, Tommy. It would be as if you know, we were facing some threat, global threat from uh, you know, terrorism, and we said basically we're going to have this regulatory group. They're going to tell us when we're, they're worried of terror, terrorism, and then we're going to hope a bunch of volunteers show up to do something about it. Yikes. And that's kind of where we are in global pandemic response. Um, you know, people used to ask me all the time during the Ebola thing, hey, uh, when are the black helicopters going to be here to, you know, take us all over? And I used to say the problem isn't that the black helicopters are coming. The problem is there are no black helicopters. I mean, there really isn't this kind of big secret global force to deal with this. Um, we're really reliant on uh, the hortatory powers of WHO and a lot of NGOs. You know, that feeling is so true for uh, so many major foreign policy challenges. And, and meetings I was in in the White House Situation Room where you kind of look around and you realize, oh, shit, like these are the people charged with yeah. fixing whatever thing we're talking about today. Okay, better get serious. Um, so last question for you. Uh, if people are listening, they've seen the news, they're concerned, they want to donate to a charity or an NGO that's helping with a response. Are there any ones you'd specifically recommend? Well, I certainly think Doctors Without Borders and uh, the International Rescue Committee are two groups doing fantastic work on the ground. The Centers for Disease Control, kind of unique in the federal government, has a private foundation that is attached to it, and gifts to there are always uh, very useful to help um, empower our response in these uh, circumstances. Um, and um, and uh, uh, I think those are the principal things I'd point people to. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, also basically the development groups doing work in uh, Eastern Congo, uh, all challenged, all need help. Um, it's a it's a it's a hard situation, um, uh, and, and I do think. Look, uh, personal generosity is great, and the kinds of checks and contributions individuals can make. But right now, we really need our government uh, to step up more and to come up with some diplomacy to allow the response to be safer. Uh, it's a hard part of the world for us to work in. I don't deny that. Uh, you know, it's not a place where we have a lot of allies and friends. Uh, we need to we need to try to find a way to help our people operate and to help uh, you know, fund uh, some of the things directly that the WHO is is trying to get funded. That's very good advice. Well, Ron, thank you for uh, doing the show today. Thank you for all the work you did in 2014 and, and previously, because man, that was scary for a while. <laughs> you know, absolutely. I mean, I, I had I had friends like you know people like you, Ben Rhodes, texting me like, "Here's a reality less scary than what's on the news," but. Uh, you know, it's freaky and it's good that, you know, well-meaning people are doing their best to try to solve these problems. So thank you again. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks, Tommy. That's it for Pod Save the World. Thank you guys for tuning in. Ben. Yeah. Great to see you. Good to be here. And uh, I'll talk to you guys next Live week. in the flesh, yeah.
sofas, recliners, love seats. Everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute. Who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.